Good afternoon. It is truly uh, a blessing to be here. I think this should go without saying, but the Lord certainly knew what he was doing when he designed the assembly. It's such a, a blessing, a privilege, the time that we're able to come together as, as brothers and sisters to praise our Father, to sing songs of, of edification to one another, to spend time being nourished upon his word. And that's what we want to do now. We want the focus to be on God's word. If there's anything of, of benefit that is going to be said uh, here from, from this lecture, and it's not going to be uh, our thoughts or our ideas or our opinions, it's going to be from the power of God's word. Because that is what is able to, to nourish us, to help us grow, to help us be who God wants us to be. We, we've been focusing for a few months now on, on the first Sunday of each month uh, on a series of lessons going through some of the basics of the gospel. In Ephesians 4 and verse 10 and 11, it talks about how God gave uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers in the church for the equipping of the saints. And one of the things that we've sought to do with this series of lessons is to do exactly that, to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry to equip us to go out and share these things, to sow the seed, to be fishers of men, and sharing the gospel with our friends and our neighbors. And so we've been going through a series of charts entitled Coming to Know God. We started out, uh, I believe, three months ago, talking about knowing our purpose. What is the purpose of life? You can't get a much more basic question than that. And yet, we have the answer on the very first page of our Bibles. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God created man in his image. And we're intended to be self-portraits of God. And we're intended to be mirrors of his character and of his glory. And yet, in our next lesson, we, we talked about knowing our failure. How none of us have lived up to that image. We've all fallen short of the glorious image of God. We're ruined paintings. We're broken mirrors. And we deserve... By, by all standards of justice, to be thrown out, to be separated from God. The wages of sin is death. And yet, God in his great love and in his great mercy and sending Jesus to die upon the cross was in essence telling us that if we go to hell, it's going to be over his dead body. God has a solution. That through the blood of his son, our, the price of our sins can be paid. We can be redeemed. We can be purchased back from the slavery of sin. And that Jesus took our punishment. He took our place upon the cross. And not only that, he didn't just suffer our death. He conquered our death. And that was the focus of the resurrection throughout the book of Acts. Is that we no longer have to fear death because Jesus has been victorious over it. But what I want us to consider today is what that means for us. Okay, I, I understand this message. I understand the good news that Jesus saves, and I, I understand uh, why his sacrifice was needed to, to pay the price for my sins. But what does that mean for me? What, what do I need to do about this? And what we see throughout the scriptures, uh, on three separate occasions, we see the phrase, obey the gospel. The word gospel means good news. This is good news, and yet there's, there's an obedience there. There's a response there that is needed. Brethren, salvation is ultimately the work of God, not man. It's 100% the work of God. We can't earn it, but that doesn't mean that receiving salvation is 
something that, that happens passively. It's something that we must uh, receive actively. There are conditions that, that we have to meet. And so I want to start by talking about where we left off. We, we talked about God's solution, and we see this talked about in, in Hebrews chapter 2 as well as in Titus 2, that this solution has been made available to all people. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, we read about Jesus, how he was made a little lower than the angels. It says, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here, Jesus' death wasn't uh, just for uh, a few select people. He didn't play favorites. Here, his death was offered to everyone. This solution is available to all people. John 3, verse uh, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so this solution that we're talking about is something that, that all of us can have access to. Titus 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. There's not a, a single person that, that has walked the face of the earth that this invitation of grace has not been available to. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, uh, even those under the old covenant ultimately being forgiven by the, the, the price that is paid later on by Jesus. But we have to contrast that idea to, to what Jesus says about salvation uh, particularly in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, that, that we've talked about some recently, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That, that, that's quite a contrast, isn't it? Titus 2, verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and yet Jesus says only few are going to be saved. That the way is narrow that leads to life. Well, what, what's the problem here? If Jesus died for all men, he tasted death for all men, God's grace is offered to all men, then why aren't all men going to be saved? I think we see clearly that there is something that I have to do. Not that I can begin to earn God's grace but that the salvation ultimately is conditional. Now, God's, God's love for us is unconditional. It's not that we had to somehow earn the offer of his grace. That, that's not how it works. But receiving that grace, receiving that cleansing, there are things that I have to do. So, brethren, salvation is 100% the work of God. And I do not want to, to, to be misunderstood in that or for us to, to have a wrong understanding of that. It's, it's not that salvation is somehow 50-50, not even 80-20, not 90-10, not 99-1. We, we cannot begin to earn even 1% or one small portion of our salvation. Salvation from start to finish is the gift of God. However, that doesn't mean we don't need to respond to this Gift. Let, let me illustrate it this way, and some of you may have heard me use this illustration before. Uh, I, I can't always remember where I've used it. I use it in just about every study that I, I have. But imagine for a moment that somebody who, who had the, the means to do this, not me, wrote a check for a million dollars and gave it to you. 
as a gift. You didn't earn that million dollars. You didn't, didn't work for it. This was uh, a gift out of the, the goodness of, of, of their heart. However, do you have to do anything to gain access to those funds? Well, you have to take the check, first of all. You, you have to write your name on the back, and you have to take it to the bank, and you have to cash it. Now, if somebody came back from the bank and they said, well, look what I did. I just earned a million dollars. You'd say, you're crazy. <laughs> you didn't earn one bit of that. Yet that doesn't mean that there weren't some things that you had to do to gain access to that gift. I think it's very similar in our relationship uh, with the Lord and in our salvation is that we, we didn't earn one single cent of that gift. But we do have to respond. And that's what we'll see throughout the scriptures. Well, if salvation is conditional, well, then what, what are the conditions? And these aren't conditions that, that you know, some, some man sat down one day and said, well, I, I think God would want us to do this, and I think God would want us to do that. No. What we need to do is we need to go to God's word and let him tell us exactly what it is we need to do. So let's try to do that today. What is it that God requires of us? to receive the cleansing that he has provided through the blood of his son. Most foundationally is faith. I think we need to make sure that, that we give this the emphasis that it deserves. John 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The foundation of our response to the gospel is and yet, what does that mean to believe in him? Does that mean to believe that there was a historical figure named Jesus that walked the earth 2,000 years ago? Well, I think it's more than that. I think when we talk about believing in Jesus, we're talking about believing that he is who he claimed to be, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and ultimately that he died to cleanse us of our sins, that we might have hope of eternal life. Faith is where things must start. You might say that faith is accepting the check, right? Uh, is, is taking it. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, we're told, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we don't start here, then nothing else that we're going to talk about matters. We need to have a genuine faith, which means belief, but also means a trust. A trust in God, a trust that that million dollar check isn't going to bounce, right? That we understand who God is and what he has done so that we might have an opportunity to be saved. However, and, and we'll see this as we go throughout, faith alone is not the only condition. You can't just take the check in your hand and keep it in your pocket and have the million dollars. We see in James chapter 2, if you'd like to turn your Bibles over there, James talks about this idea of, of faith alone. It's what he calls a dead faith. And normally in a one-on-one -on -one study, as, as we go through a chart like this, we would take about an hour. We, we might read a little bit more. For, for our purposes today, I'm going to try to keep this to about a half hour. So we're going, to, we're going to look at just a few verses here in this section. I encourage you to read all of this section uh, on your own as well. 
But James chapter 2 and verse 14, James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, James intends for that to be a rhetorical question. He, he intends that we understand the answer that he's driving at. What use is it if someone has faith but has no works? The, the answer implied is it is of no use. Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. You'll notice as we go on in this section, down in verse 19 and 20, he uses the demons as an example. Now, I, I think we can all understand that he's not using the demons as a positive example. Look in verse 19 and 20. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? There he states it very plainly. It's useless. You think about the demons. The demons believe. They understand who Jesus is. In fact, you look throughout the Gospels and we see the demons even confessing who Jesus is, uh, calling him out as the Son of God. They have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. They have even an emotional response. They shudder to Jesus. They even confess who he is. But are the demons saved? He says, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Down in verse 24, it says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We can't have a dead faith. Faith alone is not uh, what God requires of us to receive his gift of justification. God requires that we have a living faith. In fact, the, be the beginning of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, we see that the righteous will live by faith. Not the, the righteous will just p possess faith, hold it in his pocket. No, he he'll live by it day by day. And so, while faith is the foundation, we ought not to belittle the importance of a genuine belief and conviction and trust in God. Genuine faith, living faith, is something that's not going to stop there. We're not just going to take the check and carry it around in our pocket. No, we're going to take the check that we might go on to use it as God has intended. So what else does the Bible say about our response to this gift of salvation? Well, we see also in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, the importance of confession. You might compare this to signing our name on the check, right? Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, we read, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Here, living by faith means having a faith that works. It also means having a faith that speaks. That we are willing to publicly acknowledge, uh, and not just once, but continually, that Jesus is Lord, confessing with our mouth Jesus as Lord. And so, brethren, there's... Ultimately, no, no such thing as, as a, a, a secret Christian, that we are intended to be lights to the world. And that happens in our actions, but that also happens in our words. That people understand who deserves the credit for the transformation that's seen within our lives. That the Lord is who we serve. But again, is signing my name to the check 
all that's required. It is faith and confession the, the only conditions that the Bible talks about. Certainly it's very important. Romans 10, 9 and 10 makes that very clear. That this leads to salvation. But I think we can see again clearly that alone, this is not all that God has required of us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, if you want to turn back there with me. Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to notice what these people that Jesus refers to are, are saying here. He says in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now we just read in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that we need to confess Jesus as Lord. Certainly that's very important. However, here we see people doing exactly that. Confessing, at least with their mouths, Jesus as Lord. But here he tells them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why is that? Well, we see people calling Jesus Lord, but not treating him as Lord. We see people who even were very active in some ways, but they weren't truly serving the Lord. They weren't truly doing his will. They were doing their own will and, and making it out to be the Lord's. And so it's not enough just to sign our name to the check. It's not enough to call Jesus Lord. We must go on to submit to him as Lord within our lives. You might say we need to take the check to the bank. Another thing that we see throughout the scriptures is the importance of repentance in our response to the Lord. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, the, the second gospel sermon we see in the book of Acts, as Peter concludes this sermon in chapter 3 and verse 19, notice what he says. He says, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How is it that my sins are going to be wiped away? How is it that, that God's grace is intended to, to cleanse me, that, that his spirit, his presence is going to come and refresh me and be with me? Well, here he says that the response on our part requires to repent and return. What, what does that mean? Repentance is not a, a word that is used outside of religious circles very much. But the word repent, very literally, the, the, the Greek word there literally means to, to think after or to think again. It's this idea of a, of a turning of, of mind, a turning of heart. It's, it's very literally a change of heart followed by a change of life. That we are committing within our hearts, no longer to serve self, no longer to walk away from God, but turning towards God. And you, and you see the idea here, repent and return. That's kind of the idea of, of turn and return, right? Make this change, make this 180 and continue. Go towards the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 shows that this does start with a godly sorrow, a sense of remorse. Sometimes when we think about repentance, we think simply about feeling sorry for our sins. And that needs to be part of it. There's no question about it. 
But notice what he says about the sorrow for our sins in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10. Paul writes, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces it starts with what he calls a, a, a godly sorrow or sorrow according to the will of God. But that type of sorrow is going to produce a change within our hearts and within our lives. This is a sorrow, not just a worldly sorrow leading to destruction that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I got caught and I'm sorry for the consequences that I'm suffering and I sure wish that hadn't happened. It's a sorrow for what my sin has done to the image of God imprinted on my soul that I have broken his perfect image, his perfect glory. I have fallen short of what he intended for me to be. I have failed in the purpose which I am created. That type of sorrow for what my sins have done to God, for what Jesus suffered on my behalf on the cross, is going to lead toward a genuine change, a genuine repentance within our lives. But what about repentance? Is that all that we have to do? Now, now again, and I think we'll see with each of these things, this isn't a one-time thing. right? Faith is not a one-time thing. That, that I, The moment I now have faith, now I don't have to have faith anymore. Well, no, it's a continual thing. There might be an, an initial aspect to that. Confession. There might be an initial aspect to our confession. But confession is something that we're to do continually. Repentance. Certainly there is a time at which we initially make that turn towards the Lord, but we have to continue to live that out and continue to seek to turn our hearts more and more towards the Lord each day. I think we'll see that with all of these different aspects. But is repentance enough? Is that all that is needed? I I want us to spend a little bit of time in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, the first five verses here, uh, I think it would be helpful to understand kind of the fuller context of what is going on here. Early in chapter 18, we saw that Apollos, who only understood the baptism of John, had been preaching in Ephesus, uh, and that there were many who were converted to this message of a coming Messiah, but did not yet know Jesus. And so here in Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters some of these disciples. Starting in verse 1, it says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, think about these people for a moment. Uh, They they had responded to the message that they had heard. uh, And in doing so, we're told that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, that they had made a commitment in preparation for this coming Messiah to turn their lives around and turn their lives fully towards the Lord. But were, were these people in a relationship with Jesus? 
Have these been people been, been cleansed by his blood, been made part of, of his kingdom, of his family? Well, no, they don't even know Jesus. They don't even know who he is. They only know the idea that there is this coming Messiah. And so it's only after they hear Jesus preach that they are baptized again in the name of Jesus. So I think we need to recognize that, that each of these things along the way isn't intended to stand alone. Here these people had repented, but they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. They hadn't had faith or confessed Jesus as Lord. And in fact, these people had even been baptized. But they certainly were not part of the new covenant relationship with Jesus. So I think we need to recognize that you can't remove one of these from the other. With our illustration of the check, you know, if, if, if you sign your name on the check, but you never take it to the bank, it's, it's not going to do you any good. If you take it to the bank, but you forgot to put it in your pocket, it's not going to do any, any good, right? Uh, all of these things work together, and that's how God designed it. That if, if we go ahead and confess and repent and, and are baptized, but we, we don't have faith, then there's no point, right? All of these things work together in the response that God intended for us. And by the same token here in Acts chapter 19, even with baptism, they had been baptized. They, they had been uh, immersed in the water in John's baptism. But they weren't buried with Jesus. They weren't raised to walk in newness of life with him. And so that shows us it's not just the water, it's not just the act that saves us. It's, it's all of this working together in obedience to God that ultimately in uh, his grace and the power of the resurrection brings us out of that water to live new life. But we see that with baptism throughout the scripture as well, we see this being something that is extremely important in our response to the gospel throughout the book of Acts continually. You see that when people hear the gospel, how do they obey the gospel? How do they respond? Well, we see that they were to be told to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And we see this linked with all of the other things that we've talked about. In Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, we see belief and baptism. Go into all the world, the disciples are told, and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. You might say, he who has accepted the check and cashed it will receive the million dollars. Here, the gospel that they were to preach, the gospel that we need to hear is that we need to believe and that we need to be baptized in order to be saved. Not only that, in Acts chapter 8, you may remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. How he's reading from Isaiah 53 upon the road and Philip overtakes him and asks him if he understands what he's reading and he invites him into the chariot that he might help him understand. And it says that beginning from this passage, in verse 35, Philip preached Jesus to him. In verse 36, it says that they, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
Here, Philip is doing exactly what Mark 16 told him to do, right? That he is to go and preach Jesus, but, but it says he preached Jesus, and, and what does the man ask about? He asks about baptism. Obviously, preaching Jesus includes baptism. And he asks him what, what hinders him, and there we see the, the confession from the Ethiopian's mouth. Uh, he endorses the check, uh, and by God's grace, uh, receives that gift of salvation. And if you'll turn a few chapters back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we read this uh, before uh, our, our lesson together. Here in, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches the sermon about Jesus being Lord and Christ there in verse 36, the people ask in verse 37, what, what shall we do? What response should we give? They, they know that this, this requires something of them. And Peter doesn't say, well, no, you don't need to do anything. There in verse 30, it says, Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They needed to turn their lives over to the Lord and by his grace be buried with Jesus in baptism that they might receive the forgiveness of their sins. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he talks about the, the fruit of the vine being the new covenant in his blood, um, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's the exact same phrase that we find here in Acts 2.38. Um, and so certainly as surely as Jesus' blood was for the forgiveness of sins, here in our response... Our baptism is for that same goal, for that same purpose. None of these, brethren, begin to earn our salvation. It's not that, that God looks down and, and he sees our baptism and he's just so impressed with what we've done that he says, you know what, you deserve salvation. It's not how it works. There's nothing about the water. There, there, there's nothing about... Uh, you know, uh, some specific formula of, of words that's a magic spell that cleanses us of our sins. This isn't about what we do to, to accomplish or to earn salvation. This is about what we do in response to God that we, as he designed, as he designated, might receive the cleansing of his grace. You, you might compare it with uh, the Israelites when they come up to Jericho. And they're told to, to march around the city seven times that the walls might fall down. Was there something about the marching that, that you know, was just so powerful that it caused all those walls to fall down? No, brother, they could have marched for, for 40 years and it wouldn't have fallen down if it was not for the power of God. And yet, that's what God told them to do. It's our obedience to God's design to God's instructions that we might receive the power of his grace and his cleansing. And so, brethren, as we look at this and we see that, that all of these things go together in our response to the gospel, the, the response that, that God has designated for us, we, we might ask the question, well, well, at what point in this process are my sins washed away? And at what point in this process do, do I become a child of God? Well, we see throughout the scriptures that 
we, we cannot have salvation if we are not in Christ, right? In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, we're told if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Again, in Romans 8 and verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If we want to be saved, that's where we need to be. We need to be, spiritually speaking, in Christ, part of his body. Well, how do we get into Christ? I think we see multiple times throughout the scripture that baptism is the point at which God, by his grace, puts us into Christ. Romans 6, verse 3 and 4, if you'll turn your Bibles over there with me. Romans 6, Paul has talked a great deal in the book of Romans about the importance of God's grace. How we can't, by obedience to law, begin to earn our salvation. But here he, he makes a clarification that, that that doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything. That we can continue in sin, that grace may abound. He says, may it never be. In verse 3 he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. How do we get into Christ? Here he describes our baptism as being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, by God's grace. In that act, our old life is buried, is dead and gone. And we can become new creations in Christ. Those who are in Christ are new creations. Old things have passed away. We also, as we saw in our, in our uh, Bible class earlier today, see in John 3 and verse 5, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When do we start that new life? When do we start walking in newness of life? Romans 6 told us it's when we bury our old life with Jesus and we start a new one as he was resurrected from the dead, that we as well might be raised to a new life as a child of God. We also see in Galatians 3 and verse 27, Paul says here, For all who were, of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. How do we get into Christ? How, how do we clothe ourselves with Christ? Paul says earlier in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This, this broken mirror, this ruined painting that, that I have made myself, it's gone. And I now no longer live for self, but I've been clothed with Christ. Christ lives in me. Here, he describes that as happening in baptism, that we are baptized into Christ and thus clothed with Christ. And so, brethren, if, if we're honest, as we look at what God has told us within the scriptures, I think we see it's very clear what God requires of us. And as we said, the, this isn't some one-time checklist that, you know, why, well, yep, been baptized, I'm good. no. Being baptized means I buried my old life, and by God's grace, I'm to live a new life. It may be a one-time act, but it has lifelong, eternal implications. And so, I need to allow God to do his work within me. Not my work, not something that I accomplish, 
but that something that I respond to, that God might accomplish the work of his grace within my soul and within my heart. What about you? Are you in Christ today? Uh, you, you may uh, look at some of those things that, that we looked at within the scripture and think, well, I, I'm not sure I did exactly that. Maybe you like the people in Acts 19 who uh, understood some of those things and, and, and responded uh, to some extent, but recognized that, wait a second, we, we didn't fully understand uh, what we needed to, to, to uh, enter into a relationship with this Messiah, with this King. Maybe that's you today. If there's anyone here who recognizes that their heart is not right with the Lord, don't leave these doors without making that right with him. By God's grace, you have been given an opportunity uh, to receive this immeasurable gift of his grace, of his cleansing, of a hope of eternity in God's presence. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, to come back to him, to commit your life to him for the first time, that is why we're here. That's what we want to do. We're about to sing a song, and if anybody has a need of a public nature that they need to bring before these brethren, we ask that you all come to the aisle and make that known as we sing together.